the lesson, I have a, a brief disclaimer that I need to give you guys pertaining to this lesson. As you may have guessed by, by the reading, this is a, a lesson on unity. Now, the disclaimer is this. This is not a lesson saying, y'all need to be unified. That's not what this is. Um, as we'll see in the text tonight, and as we'll study, and it should become pretty evident, the point of this sermon is that unity is something that needs to be preserved. Unity is not something that will preserve itself on its own. It has to be constantly worked at to be preserved. So if you get anything from this lesson tonight, it needs to be that. So let's go ahead and, and get down into the text. Starting in verse 1, we read, Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you. I'll stop right there for a minute. There's two words that should stick out into our minds. The first is that word implore. In the reading, I believe it was beseech. Some translations will say um, something like, I beg, um, I, I ask. That's the idea there. Paul is, is he's beseeching, he's imploring, he is begging them to do this. So that should set some alarm bells off in our head that what he's about to say is important. What he's about to say is a very major point in this book, if not the major point in the book. But there's another word we need to look at first, and it's the very first word, therefore. Now that tells us we need to, to go back in the text and see what he's talking about. We need to go back and get a little bit of context. And if we look back in the text, it ought to take us back to chapter 2. So go ahead and flip there, and we're going to we're going to talk about a little bit of context here before we really dive down into chapter 4. So Paul is, is writing to the Ephesians, and the Ephesians, as, as most churches at this time, are made up of Jews and Gentiles. And he's talking to them. In, in chapter 2, starting in verse 1, he says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. He says they were dead in their sins. They, they walked according to those sins and those trespasses. We see that, that phrase, they were dead in their trespasses and sins. That, that takes me back to the garden. When Adam and Eve partook of that forbidden fruit, they died a spiritual death. And everyone since then that has sinned has died that same spiritual death, including the Ephesians here. He says, you were in that state. That's the state that they were in before Jesus came to them. They were dead in their sins. And then in verse 4, he says, but God... This is a powerful phrase right here because that tells us that everything he just talked about doesn't matter. Everything he just talked about is inconsequential because of what he's going to talk about next. He says, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. Isn't that wonderful that 
They were, they were dead in their sins. They, they walked according to their trespasses and sins. But God changed all that. God, because of His love and His rich mercy, made them alive. And he goes on and he says in verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. You see, they, they didn't work their own salvation. They did not bring about their own salvation. They did not forgive their own sins. But it was the blood of Christ that did that. And it was obedience to God that brought them into contact with that blood. And he goes on and he says in verse 10, For we are his workmanship. We are God's craft, if you will. He has made us. He has created us. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Now we hear that word walk again, and that should take us back to, to verse 2. It says, in which you formerly walked, talking about their trespasses and sins. So he's saying you, you used to walk according to your sins. You used to walk in this manner, but instead walk in these good works that I have prepared for you. Walk in that way. And then he goes on, the, the second part of, of chapter 2 kind of mirrors the first part, if you look at it. It's a little bit different, but it's very similar. And in, in, in verse 11 he says, Therefore remember that you, formerly the Gentiles in the flesh. Now he's, he's not talking to them as, as one whole unit, but he's, he's splitting them up into the Jews and the Gentiles. And he says, Remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision. Now he's telling them, you, you used to be called uncircumcision. You used to be separate from God's people. And he says the so-called circumcision. Those are the Jews that are supposed to be God's people. They're supposed to be obeying God's word and his will, but they're not. So they are so-called circumcision. He says, remember that you were at that time. And he gives us three, three attributes of them at that time. He says, one, you were separate from Christ. You were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. And number three, you were strangers to the covenants of promise. They were separate from Christ. They did not know Christ. They were not in contact with, with him and his blood that washes away sin. They were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel all the, the spiritual blessings that Israel had because they were God's people. These Gentiles did not have those blessings. And they were strangers to the covenants of promise. That should take us back to the covenant between God and Abraham that through his seed, through his line, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. That's the promise of the Messiah. They, they were strangers to that covenant. They were not looking forward to that covenant. And then he tells us in the latter part of that verse what their, their final state was because of those things. They had no hope and were without God in the world. They were, by definition, hopeless. And they had no God. Imagine 
for a moment, if you would, what it would be like if we had no God in this world. We wouldn't be here tonight. We'd have no reason to be here tonight. Most of us in this room that aren't uh, blood relatives, I doubt that we would know each other if we had no God. We'd have no reason to assemble, no reason to fellowship. And if you follow that line of thinking, you ultimately get to the idea that we would have no reason to be here on earth, no reason to live. That is the state that they were in. They were hopeless and had no God in this world. But he goes on and says in verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, and this is where it gets really important. This is where it it pertains to that idea of unity, you'll see. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So you Gentiles, you were over here, you were far from God, but you've been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who made both groups, now listen to this, both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. We had a Bible geography class in school our first quarter, and one of the things we talked about was in, in Israel, in Jerusalem, on the Temple Mount, they had this great big temple platform, and then inside of that they had the, the actual temple itself. This is where the, the sacrifices would, would go on and things like that. And outside of that temple they had a short wall, probably came up to about knee height, all the way around, and anyone was allowed on the temple platform. If you were a Gentile and, and you became a Jew, you converted to Judaism, you were allowed on that platform. But only Jews were allowed inside that dividing wall. This says he broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. This is important here. So that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross. Not only did he, he bring the Gentiles near to God, but he made the Jews and the Gentiles one new group. It says one new man. Now that idea of man, it's, it's more than just one group. We look at the congregation today, we are one group but you can spot the individual people. I'm an individual person. You guys are individual people. When we walk out the door, we are no longer this group right here. He says he made them into one new man. Now, I look at the, the parts of my body and my fingers, my hands, my arms. Yes, I can distinguish them from each other, but they are one body. They are knitted together on a fundamental level. They can be separated, but it's hard. I don't want them to be separated. When that separation happens, they're going to lose function. The body is going to lose function. And he says they were one body. But not only that, he reconciled them both in one body to God. He made them one body, and he made them right before God. He made them able to stand before God. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to you who were near. 
Verse 19, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's own household. No longer are they strangers. God knows them, and they know God now. They are citizens of God's kingdom. They can enjoy all the spiritual blessings of God's kingdom. But they are of God's own household. That takes it to a a more personal level. They're not just part of God's kingdom. They're part of His household. I would wager that just about every one of us in here, the members of our household are not just people we met on the street. They're not people that we don't know really well, that are, are strange, that, you know, just acquaintances. No, they're family or they are really close friends. That's what that idea there is, part of God's own household. And so then that brings us to the end of chapter 2, and we get this, this context, this idea that they were, they were far off, they were separate, they were dead in their sins, and they've been made alive in Christ, and they've been made into one cohesive unit. And chapter 3 continues this line of thinking that the Jews and the Gentiles are all on the equal playing field. And we won't get into that tonight, but we'll go ahead and get it back into chapter 4. So once again, let's go to verse 1. Therefore, so keeping in mind everything we just talked about, that's what he's saying. Keep in mind that you Ephesians, that you were dead in your sins, that you were separate from Christ, and that you were made alive by Christ, and you were brought near to God. Keep that in mind and listen to this. I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. And so we can say now, what's What's this got to do with us? It's all good and fine that Paul wrote to the Ephesians and told them all this stuff. Told them all this stuff. What's it got to do with us? Well, weren't we all at one time dead in our sins and trespasses? Weren't we all at one time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to that covenant of promise? And haven't we been made alive in Christ been brought near to God. This applies just as much to us as it does to them. So, so therefore, because we have been made near to God, because we have been made alive in Christ, Paul is imploring us to walk in that worthy manner. Now, my English brain reads that, that sentence, walk in a worthy manner, and I automatically look at the word worthy as an adjective, meaning that it's describing a noun. The noun in that case being the one doing the walking. So I read that and I think that if I am going to walk worthy, I have to be worthy. But this wasn't written in English. This was written in Greek. And in the Greek text, that word worthy is actually an adverb. It's describing a verb. It's modifying a verb. The verb is walk. We don't have to be worthy. We're not worthy. But the walk is worthy. And he's telling us, he's telling them, partake of that 
worthy walk. What is that worthy walk? Well, this is one of the coolest things about studying Scripture. When you have questions like this, if you, if you keep reading, they almost always get answered. We ask, what is that worthy walk? And verse 2 and 3 tells us, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. That is the worthy walk. Preserve the unity of the Spirit. That's what we are called to walk in. We are called to preserve that unity. And how do we do that? Well, verse 2 tells us plainly, with all humility and gentleness and patience. So let's look at that word humility for a minute. When I think of humility, I automatically think of, of Moses. In Numbers chapter 12, one of our classes at school this year was Exodus through Deuteronomy. And when we were in the book of Numbers, we, we saw something kind of interesting. In Numbers chapter 12, it reads, Then Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married. And they said, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us as well, and the Lord heard it? Now, this is verse 3, Now the man Moses was very humble, more than any man who was on the face of the earth. I've always thought that was strange, that that, that particular fact about Moses is sitting right there. In the middle of this account, where Moses' brother and sister come and accuse him of doing wrong, we get this verse that Moses was the most humble man on the whole earth. See, that verse, it's taken the place of something else. That verse takes the place of Moses standing up and defending himself before his brother and sister. Moses could have fired right back at them and retaliated and said, well, you guys aren't perfect either. Here's what you're doing wrong. I'm, there's nothing wrong with what I'm doing. I'm doing everything right. He could have said that, but he was silent. Instead, he let God defend himself. In the very next verse, in verse 4, God appears before the tent of meeting, and he calls Miriam and Aaron over, and he sets them straight. He tells them that Moses isn't doing anything wrong. That's humility. That's biblical humility. When we are, are challenged by someone else, when someone accuses us of wrongdoing, do we defend ourselves or do we let God's Word defend us? Do we stamp our foot in the ground and say, no, you're wrong, I'm right? Or do we turn to Scripture? So what does Scripture say about the matter? What does the Word of God say? That's humility. And, and sometimes it's not always enough just to, to be humble. Sometimes it's not always enough just to let God's Word speak. The next, the next idea we have there is gentleness. Sometimes when, when someone comes to you and accuses you of doing wrong, you can point to God's Word and say, see, that's where it says I'm right. That's where it says you're wrong. And you may very well be right. God's Word may defend you, but 
If you don't do it in a gentle way, you're turning someone away. That gentleness there. If you tell them, well, I understand why you feel that way. I understand why you might think that. But here is why I do what I do. Here is what Scripture says. And you gently and calmly explain it to them. And the last thing we have is patience. Now this is interesting because it says patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. That tolerance for one another in love is a good definition for patience. There's, there's two important words in that sentence, tolerance, one, and love, another one. Society would define those words in a certain way that I, I think is, is not the right way to define them. They would say that love is allowing someone to do what they want because that's what they want. They would say that love and tolerance go hand in hand because if someone is doing something, whether it's right or wrong, whether I think it's right or wrong, tolerate them. Let them do that because you love them. That's not biblical love. That word there for love, that's the, the self-sacrificial love, the agape love. That means I want what is best for that person. Not what they want, what they would enjoy the most, what would make them happy, but what is best for them. And then the tolerance. If they're doing something that, that I don't particularly like, but Scripture doesn't disagree with it, that's the tolerance. And that tolerance and that love, they work hand in hand because if they're doing something that I don't like and Scripture disagrees with it, that's where the love comes in. That's where the love should push me to go help them, to go sit down with them, to talk to them, to go to them with humility and gentleness, to try to have an impact on them. And that's what patience is, that tolerance for one another and love. There's an old saying I heard, a lady in class, an older gal, um, I don't remember her name, she, she piped up and said it. And it was a saying they used to have in her church growing up. It went like this, in, in matters of opinion, liberty. In matters of salvation, unity. And in all things, love. And that sums it up right there. If, if someone is doing something differently and it's a matter of opinion, if it doesn't matter that much, tolerate it. If they're doing something that's wrong, it's biblically wrong, love them and go talk to them. Go help them. That is how we can preserve the unity of the Spirit. By being humble, by being gentle, and by being patient with each other. You look at our world today and it's pretty easy to see division in our world. It's pretty easy to see that our world is not unified on just about anything. And if we're not careful, that disunity can make its way into the church. Unity must be preserved. And now all night we've been talking in, in chapter 2 about people who are, are Christians. 
people who are members of the church that, that have been made alive by Christ. But if there's anyone who is not a Christian, let me tell you where, where you stand according to Ephesians 2. You are dead in your trespasses and sins. Period. All that stuff about Christ or God making you alive with Christ, that hasn't happened. You are still in verse 1. You're dead in your trespasses and sins. But it doesn't have to stay that way. You don't have to stay in that same state of spiritual death. You can be made alive by Christ through obedience to the Word of God. You can hear the Word of God. You can believe it. You can confess that Christ is the Son of God and you can repent of your sins and be baptized for the remission of those sins. You can do that tonight. You can do that right now. If you are a Christian, maybe, maybe you, you were a Christian and you were made alive in Christ, but, but since then you have returned to that old walk and you are walking according to your trespasses and sins. You can come home tonight. You can be made right with God tonight. We're here to, to help you in any way that we can. If you are in a wrong relationship with God in any way, don't leave tonight without changing that. Whatever your need may be, please make it known while we stand and sing.